The Smartest Robot on Mars, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome, I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Vandy Verma started loving robots as a kid and never stopped. Now she leads robotic operations for the Mars 2020 Perseverance rover. She'll tell us how the six-wheeled explorer is driving across the red planet with the help of what's called AutoNav. Space shuttle orbiters are big. It's hard to believe that Bruce Betts and I overlooked them in the What's Up Space Trivia contest, but we did. Find out what I'm talking about just before Bruce offers a new contest in this week's episode. I'll go to headlines from our weekly newsletter, The Downlink, in a moment. First, though, I have an invitation for you. You can join me, Bill Nye, Bruce Betts, and others for the online premiere of a wonderful new documentary about the ongoing mission of LightSail 2. Our watch party for Sailing the Light is set for 10 a.m. Pacific, 1700 UTC on Saturday, August 28th. It will be free, of course, at planetary.org slash live. Leading the headlines this week is a still unfolding mystery on Mars. As we publish this episode, scientists and engineers, no doubt including this week's guest, Vandy Verma, are working out why Perseverance came up empty-handed, or more precisely, empty sampling-tubed, after its first attempt to collect material from a Martian rock. The team is confident they'll figure this out. Wait till you hear how it all works from Vandy. Simply amazing. Lucy is getting ready for her long journey to Jupiter. The NASA spacecraft reached the Kennedy Space Center last week. The launch window for this Trojan asteroid explorer opens on October 16th. The U.S. Government Accounting Office has denied the protests by Blue Origin and Dynetics that awarded a human lunar lander contract only to SpaceX. Meanwhile, SpaceX for the first time stacked its Starship on top of a super-heavy booster, creating a vehicle that was taller than the old Saturn V. This was just a mating test, and the Starship has now been removed. SpaceX is still waiting for approval of a first flight by the Mammoth rocket. You'll find more, and this week much, much more, about Jupiter at planetary.org slash downlake. My free monthly newsletter is at planetary.org slash radio news. Vandy Verma has been driving rovers on Mars for 13 years. As you'll hear, tooling across the red planet is not the only thing she loves about her job at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. Actually, it's jobs, plural. She's not only the mission's chief engineer for robotic operations, Vandy also serves as assistant section manager for mobility and robotic systems across all of JPL. She was featured in a recent article about how Perseverance is using its advanced self-driving capability to get around nearly 10 times as fast as its older sister, Curiosity. It didn't take long during our conversation a couple of weeks ago to realize that there has never been a machine as complex or as capable on another world. Dr. Vandy Verma, welcome to Planetary Radio, your, your first appearance on uh, Planetary Radio. I also want to congratulate you on beginning Perseverance's trek across Jezero Crater. We've all been waiting for this. Thank you for having me. And yes, we are very excited about the 
finally being in, at Jezero Crater and exploring that location. I am only sorry that we're not talking to each other across a table or a desk at JPL because, frankly, I really wanted to try those 3D glasses that you and the other rover drivers get to use. Have you been doing a lot of your work from home like so many of us? Like a lot of people, we've had to make adjustments because of the pandemic. Close to landing, our entire operations facility was redone, but it meant that a lot fewer people can be on lab. So a large part of our team is remote, and we do a lot of our strategic work remotely. But to actually drive the rovers and operate the robotic arm and sampling system, we are on lab for that. Uh, So I go into uh, JPL regularly uh, to drive the rovers. And I wanted to add that you'll have to come back when we can have guests and we'll be sure to get to you that experience with the 3D goggles. Thank you. You will hear from me. I cannot wait because (laughs) I I have read how you sometimes, when you're wearing the goggles, you just like to stare at Mars. Putting those goggles on and the cameras we have on this rover are so spectacular that it's, it's a really immersive experience. You feel like you're right there because you can take such a panorama and you can pan in different directions. It's sort of like you're turning your head and you can control where you want to look. It really makes the terrain come alive. Jezero is, is an incredible location and it's so rich in the variation and the features and the geology that it, it really is neat to see in 3D. We have talked to other rover drivers over the years, I think at least going back to, to Spirit and Opportunity. But I think it's worth repeating, if not for uh, this audience, well, there must be one or two people out there who are still thinking that maybe you rover drivers have a joystick or a steering wheel. Uh, could you give us the the little uh, speech that I'm sure you've given a hundred times that, that explains how it doesn't exactly work that way? Yeah. So... Uh- One of the reasons we can't drive the rovers in real time is just the relative distance between Earth and Mars. The distance is such that the fastest, just for one-way light time, for a signal to get from Earth to Mars can take four minutes. But because Earth and Mars are also rotating around the sun and the distance varies, it could take up to 24 minutes just Mm. for us to send a signal one way. That really isn't sufficient for us to be able to hit the brakes and Uh, stop the rover. It also would mean that we're sending a command and then we're waiting this long to send the next and we'd make really slow progress. So what we do is we plan the entire SOL's plan and a SOL is a Martian day. And we have to think through all of the possibilities that the rover could encounter as it's doing this drive. It might slip. The wheels might actually slip in the sand such that it's making less forward progress and it's digging deeper. So the odometry may show us that we've covered 10 meters, but we may only have gone nine. So you have to think, if I'm trying to turn around a rock, what does that mean? So when we drive the rovers, we send the entire SALT's plan to the rovers, and then it takes the images and sends the data back to us. We use those to create this 3D terrain environment in which we plan the subsequent drive. And there are nuances to this which also mean why we don't drive in real time. We send the signals from Earth to Mars direct to the rovers, but they go through the deep space network. And there are antennas all around the world, but we also have a lot of deep space spacecraft and we have to share the time with them. So there is the coordination with the deep space network. On top of that, the rovers take so much data that 
we transmit it to orbiters around Mars and then transmit the data back to Earth. So there is this coordination that has to happen between when it's daylight on Mars, because that's how we take the images and drive the rovers at that time, when the orbiters are flying over the rover, and when we have the deep space network time. And all of this results in us having a complex schedule in which we can actually drive the rovers. So all of this also explains why it would be a high priority to develop a rover that is smart enough to do some of this driving on its own. And of course, that's one of the things we were hoping to talk to you about. Uh, AutoNav, you must be thrilled to see Perseverance beginning to, to find its own way across Mars with the guidance that you folks provide on a soul-by-soul basis. Yes, it's been a very exciting to be able to drive distances beyond what we can see in the last images the rover sent to us. And that's what we mm. get with AutoNav. Because there's so much variability in the terrain, the cameras beyond a certain distance can see the horizon. And the orbital images don't have enough accuracy for us to be able to drive the rovers and avoid the hazards. So what autonomous navigation allows us to do is the rover itself will analyze the terrain, detect the hazards, and find its path around it. But it's actually a lot of fun for rover drivers, even with AutoNav, because All autonomous technology, especially when you're putting it on processes that are radiation-hardened for space and are computationally limited, there are certain things they can't do very well, such as, you know, in in the case of Perseverance, detect sand. And so rover drivers still have to plan the overall path and guide AutoNav so that we uh, tailor the drive to maximize the success for AutoNav. We'll put up a link on this week's show page at planetary.org slash radio to a lot of great resources, including a video that actually documents this first autonav roll across uh, the red planet in in kind of an S-shaped curve. I mean, did it function the way, is it functioning the the way you all hoped? Yes, uh, autonav has been uh, doing really well. One of the things we really wanted to do was speed it up for Perseverance. And so Mm. we have a dedicated processor, which is allowing us to run AutoNav a lot faster than we could on any previous mission. The drive that I think you're talking about, which was the first AutoNav checkout drive, we had identified a set of obstacles, rocks, that we wanted it to go around and actually drove it around those and it, it detected the rocks and did exactly what we had intended it to do. So that's been great. As as you initially try out technology, you really are seeing it in the environment it was designed for. And we take these steps so that we can make sure that some of the assumptions we had made are still valid. Uh, Earth, we do everything we can on Earth to test it, but Mars is Mars. (laughs) (laughs) And Mars is hard. Didn't Curiosity have an earlier version of of AutoNav that ended up not being used much? So Curiosity also had AutoNav, in fact, as did uh, Spirit and Opportunity. So there's a couple of differences. The first being that we didn't have a dedicated processor for us to do the image processing. So it was a lot slower than it is on a Perseverance. We could drive, if we did both, visual odometry, which is how we drive the rover such that we can detect slip. And we do autonav. We could drive about 20 to 30 meters an hour. With Perseverance, we expect to be able to drive up to, in a a given sol, we expect to drive about 
200 to 300 meters without an wow. single cell. We are now just going and doing shorter drives, but we expect to reach reach that milestone. And so that's that's really that's made a huge difference. There's one other factor that I read about, and there's a cute phrase to describe it, uh, which I, I maybe it has to do with having that dedicated processor for handling AutoNav. It's uh, thinking while driving. What a concept. People should try that on the freeway. <laughs> yes, uh, there is, in fact, this additional capability. On previous missions, what we would do is we would take an image, which is the image in which AutoNav is going to analyze the hazards, and we would have the robot stop, think about, as we call it, where the hazards are, and then turn the wheels. And the reason is because it allows us to do this in steps where you know where you're at, you're uh, analyzing the hazard, and you can proceed. With thinking while driving, it's doing that autonomous processing while the wheels are turning. So you have to take factor that into account in terms of the model you have of the expected distance it's going to cover and do the drive. But that results in a significant speed up as well, because you're not stopping to do the terrain hazard analysis. The other news that came out, actually, since we scheduled this interview, is that we are getting closer now to Perseverance beginning to collect its first sample, which, of course, is what everybody has been excited about. You know, we we often on this show call uh, sample collection the holy grail of uh, Mars exploration, or at least robotic Mars exploration. And so now I guess we're getting close, but I, I don't think a site has been selected yet, has it? So the science team has selected a location that we expect we will collect the first sample. So we hmm. are very excited about this. We are actually today doing a long drive to get close enough to that location such that we will need to just do a precision bump to get to precisely the location in which we want to position the robotic arm in the orientation in which we can because it's a we are limited because we have a five degree of freedom arm into where we can reach. So we, we are driving to close enough such that we can do that precision drive. Uh, so it's 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 about to start, and it's a very, very exciting part of the mission. It is the prime reason we are there, is to cache these samples for a subsequent return to bring back to Earth. I note that you also worked, contributed to Europa Clipper, and to the effort to come up with something to land on that moon of uh, Jupiter. And, you know, the need for autonomous activity by those spacecraft, I, I imagine, is obvious to everybody. Do you see a bright future for our robots around the solar system? I mean, are they just going to get smarter and smarter and more capable? That's so neat that you looked all this uh, information <laughs> up. It's part of the job. I'm, I'm very impressed. <laughs> but, uh, yes, I think that it becomes even more important as we go further out in the solar system because the communication delay just gets longer. If we want to have missions that go further out, they need to be more and more autonomous. And there are other constraints, such as, you know, the example you gave of the Europa Lander mission that we had been looking at. And these are all, you know, hypothetical missions, real, other than Clipper. Clipper is a real right, mission. Right, right. Thank goodness. But... Right. But I think in, in uh, some of these cases, when we're looking at possibilities, which we have to sort of take a concept and study it carefully in order to make it a potential possibility for scientists to be able to evaluate, 
There are certain missions where they're constrained by the lifetime because you're going to locations that are just so harsh, either, either thermally or radiation-wise, that the robot, whether it's a land or, or a rover, or other mobility platforms, we, we are looking at snake robots and various other aerial platforms, will have a lifetime on the order of weeks. Hmm. And so now you really need to be autonomous because you can't wait for the signal from Earth to tell you what to do next. I, I just think the future is going to be very interesting. Let me go in a slightly different direction as we wrap up here. You know, uh, we know, I know, kids love robots. Do you see robots, robotics, as a gateway for young people into STEM careers? I mean, you've been fascinated by robotics and, and programming since you were pretty small. Yes, I, I think robotics is a fantastic way to get kids excited about you know, just the process of science in general, because you, you, you can do something and then you have to go and potentially study a particular area and then apply it. You learn through that iterative process of applying the theory you learn, and it can start in really small ways. And, you know, with JPL before, uh, we right now we are still in a pandemic transition, but we have an open house and we get thousands of people who come through there. And I always try and volunteer at these because the kids who come through there, it's just so interesting to see how much they already know about these missions. Uh, sometimes they think of these robots as their friend and they'll come and give you these, they've thought about the problems you've encountered and they're really creative and interesting. And I think it's a great way to get them excited about it, to, to feel as part of following the story, they're problem solving along with us. I try and do as much as I can to try and connect with students. Uh, I always say, you know, robots and dinosaurs, you know, they're a really <laughs> great way to get kids excited about science. So boys and girls, keep it up. And you just might end up building robots uh, that will help us explore the solar system and maybe someday even beyond. You know, that statement is actually really, really almost so literally true for perseverance because we're collecting these samples and it's going to be the 2030s by the time these samples are brought back to Earth. Some of the young people who are still in school may be the ones who are sort of analyzing and studying these samples. So I think they really are, that generation really is part of this mission. Vandy, it has been absolutely delightful talking with you. Uh, this is a great place for us to end, but we won't really end because I look forward to celebrating with you and the rest of the team when that first sample is safely in its little tube packed away, at least temporarily, uh, inside the Perseverance rover, and then to be dropped off to be picked up later, returned to Earth, and, and who knows, maybe we will make that discovery of uh, whether we are alone in the solar system and the universe. Thank you, Vandy, for all of this work that you and the team do and uh, for joining us today. Thank you. I, I really appreciate your uh, covering the work we do. Vandy Verma of the Jet Propulsion Lab is the chief engineer for robotic operations on the Perseverance Mars rover. She had much more to tell us about sample collection and about working with the Mars Helicopter Ingenuity Team. You can hear it all at planetary.org slash radio. Back in a minute with What's Up, this is Planetary Radio. LightSail 2 made history with its launch and deployment in 2019, and it's still sailing. Hi, everyone. It's Bruce. 
Program Manager for the Planetary Society's LightSail Program. Your support made this happen. Now we need help to continue the adventure. Gifts in support of our extended mission will be matched up to $25,000 by a generous society member. Details are at planetary.org slash S-A-I-L-O-N. That's planetary.org slash sail on. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. It's time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here is Bruce Betts, the Chief Scientist of the Planetary Society. Welcome. Hi, Matt. As you know, because we just discussed it, interesting um, predicament with uh, the question that will be answered in a few moments today the, uh, from the question, the quiz that you posed uh, a couple of weeks ago that I know you are prepared to deal with. I am prepared, thanks to you. <laughs> So prepare us for the night sky. Oh, nice segue. Evening sky, saw it last night. Venus, as always, looking really, really bright over in the west shortly after sunset. And and then coming up in the east around sunset are Jupiter and Saturn. Jupiter, the much brighter of the two. Saturn looking yellowish. Uh, We've got the Perseid meteor shower peaking. If you pick this up shortly after it comes out. Peaks the night of the 12th and 13th of August, with increased activity several days before and after. The best viewing will be after midnight. It typically is as the Earth hits the uh, oncoming meteors, or Earth becomes oncoming. Anyway, after midnight, also, uh, <laughs> the moon will have set by then, leaving darker skies. But you can see, see meteors before then, to Go out, check it out, relax. Dark sight will, of course, be better. It's typically the second best meteor shower of the year behind the Geminids. We move on to this week in space history. 2005, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter was launched with its tremendous science instruments to study Mars. Still working. It's quite a performer. has uh, certainly done a lot of great work for us. We move on to... Space Fact... For some reason, it makes me feel like I had a head for the drag strip. Yeah. Hey, Matt, you and I, you you originally pointed this out to me a while back, but now it's actually happened. Two European Space Agency spacecraft with totally different missions, totally unrelated to Venus, flew past Venus during the last week, only 33 <laughs> hours apart. The Solar Orbiter spacecraft, which is, of course, studying the sun primarily, and the BepiColombo spacecraft that's headed to Mercury, both used Venus for a gravity assist to help them head farther into the inner solar system. Quite a random space fact. Congratulations to uh, the teams for both of those missions. Best of success as you head toward your final destinations. I'll put this out to listeners. I could not find an example of two flybys of another planet so closely timed. I can't imagine there would have been, but if anyone knows there is, uh, let us know. Bet you are right about that. Uh, It seems like something we would have heard about. Are we ready for the contest? Oh, we're so ready for the contest. I asked, after mere 
and Skylab. What was the most massive artificial object to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere? And I meant to say uncontrolled, end of mission, kind of didn't think to say that. So uh, how'd we do, Matt? What would people tell us? (laughs) Well, like I said, I've already given Bruce a heads up about this. We had more people come up with an alternative answer, an alternative to what Bruce had in mind, than probably we ever have before. I'd say half or more of uh, people who entered uh, this one came up with a variety of space shuttles, all of them, basically, although some people even differentiated among the different orbiters because some were heavier than others. But that's not what you were looking for, was it? No, but I'm, uh, depending on what random.org found, I'm happy to take that answer because the space shuttle was indeed incredibly massive and was more massive than anything else that we're talking about. What else did people say? I'll get to our winner in a moment, but here is our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild in Kansas with the answer I think you were looking for. Cosmos 1686 was docked with Solute 7, Round the Earth they traveled in a low-Earth orbit heaven. Solyut 7 had six crews that served in the arena until in 1991 she crashed in Argentina, (laughs) where, according to to Torsten Zimmer in Germany, nobody cried for it. little Broadway (laughs) reference. Get it? Get it? Yeah, I I get it. I get it. Salut Vita. (laughs) Here's our winner. And he's a first-time winner although I think he's been listening for quite a while, Michael Kaspol in uh, Germany, who uh, sure enough said Salyut 7, uh, coupled with the Cosmos 1686 TKS spacecraft, total mass, he says, about 40,000 kilograms, thus a VNEO, a very near-Earth object. Congratulations, Michael. You have gotten yourself a copy of a great book, uh, Across the Airless Wilds, the Lunar Rover, and the Triumph of the Final Moon Landings by Earl Swift. I've read a little bit more of it since uh, we first said that we were going to offer this book. It is really fascinating about the development of the rovers and how much they contributed to Apollo, as we uh, discussed recently with Andy Chaikin when we talked about Apollo 15, the first one to uh, the first of those folks on the moon to have one of these to tool around in. It's published by Custom House. Excellent. We're ready for a brand new one of these. I checked, and I don't think I've ever asked this. What is the tallest mountain on Venus? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest and give us your answer. I don't know how this never got asked in the past, but uh, shouldn't be too hard for you to find. Just make sure that you find it and enter by Wednesday, August 18 at 8 a.m. Pacific time. And here's what you might win. It's another great book, Lighten the Darkness, Black Holes, the Universe, and Us by Heno Falke. He's an award-winning astrophysicist. He's the guy who actually went up to make the announcement of the first image, actual image of a black hole from the Event Horizon Telescope. A fascinating book with a, a little bit of a spiritual angle to it as well, published by Harper One. That'll be yours if you're chosen by random.org. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about metamorphosis. Thank you, and good night. That is Bruce Betts. 
the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, who before our eyes is metamorphosizing into the program manager for the light sail mission from the Planetary Society. He joins us every week here for What's Up. Luckily, not a cockroach. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its self-driven members. Once again, the premiere of Sailing the Light, our light sail documentary, is Saturday, August 28th at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1700 UTC. You can set a reminder to join Bill Nye, Bruce, and me at youtube.com slash planetary society. Mark Hilverda and Jason Davis are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. Ad Astra.